I know right now there is so much pain, there is so much anger, there is so much frustration, there is so much tension, but our goal should be to match those feelings with an equal amount of hope. And that only happens if we stand united in our commitment to make real and lasting change. Let me start by being very clear. As a labor movement in New York State, we recognize, we believe, and we know that Black Lives Matter. Civil War monuments erected to humiliate the descendants of slaves have been taken down at an extraordinary rate. New policies on police oversight and accountability have been enacted locally all over the country. The street leading to the White House is now called Black Lives Matter Plaza. This is real. This is change real change and is having a lasting effect. For the New York State AFL-CIO, I'm Darcy Wells, and this is Union Strong. On today's podcast, something a little different. You'll hear from the president of the New York State AFL-CIO, Mario Salento, and our secretary-treasurer, Terry Melvin, who's also the president of the Coalition of Black Trade Unionists. Both will speak on racial injustice in America and what the labor movement can do to change it. Let's start with the president of the New York State AFL-CIO, Mario Salento. It goes without saying that we're at a time of great social unrest in our country. And I know as we all try to continue to cope with the COVID-19 pandemic and an uncertain economy, It's the social unrest that's at the forefront of all of our minds, as it should be. So let me start by being very clear. The horrific and senseless death of George Floyd has left us all reeling. As a labor movement in New York State, we recognize, we believe, and we know that black lives matter. I want to say it again. Black lives matter. We are at a pivotal moment in our nation's history. You can feel it. You can see it. But it has to be more than that. It can't just be seeing it from the sidelines. We have to seize this moment of pain and anguish in order to finally bring about the change that is so desperately needed. It's our responsibility, not just as members of the labor movement, not just as New Yorkers, not just as Americans, but most importantly, as human beings. The labor movement at its core has always been a social justice movement. Labor rights and civil rights go hand in hand. The labor movement was on the front lines of the Civil Rights Movement, and we fought for the Voting Rights Act. Dr. Martin Luther King was assassinated at a, at a rally in Memphis, Tennessee, in support of a sanitation worker strike. We fight to ensure that those who lack a voice are heard. We fight to level the playing field for all men and women, no matter their race or creed or background, to provide everyone with an equal and realistic opportunity to achieve the American dream. We fight for the right to collectively bargain for better pay and benefits, a better retirement, all of which is supposed to lead to a better quality of life for all workers, black, brown, white, regardless of color. That equality starts by being able to have a voice at the workplace, the ability and the responsibility of all of us to speak up when we see wrong. It's on all of us to point out injustices, to stand up and fight for those being left behind. But, but, That fight cannot and should not end at the workplace. 
As a labor movement, we need to put the same strength and commitment and dedication to fighting for better wages and benefits behind the fight for social equality. Because again, it isn't our union cards at stake. Our humanity is at stake. The bedrock foundation of the labor movement is the common bond we all share. Because all working people, all people really share a bond. It's a bond that says no matter who you are or where you're from, regardless of whether you were born in this country or not, regardless of whether your parents were born in this country or not, regardless of your job title or your sector, regardless of the color of your skin or the religion that you practice, we all share a common bond that says we all share the same needs and the same concerns and the same wants. We all share the same values and the same principles and the same ideals. And those principles and ideals are basically this. We all want to be able to go to work every morning to support ourselves and our families. We all want to be part of the economic engine that runs this state and runs this country. And we all want to be productive members of society. That's what we want. But it's even more than that. And I'll give you my own example. My wife and I have three daughters, and they are 17, 15, and 10 years old. And at the end of the day, when I get home from work and I see them, all I want to do is their parent. All I want to do is their father is I want to nurture them. I want to protect my girls and I want them to have a better life than me. I want them to have a brighter future than I had at their age. If you're a parent, that's what you want for your child. If you're not a parent, that's what your parents wanted for you because that's the American dream. The American dream isn't about buying a new house or owning a new car. Those are residual effects of the American dream. The American dream in this country historically has been that we want the next generation to do a little bit better than the generation before it. We want the next generation to be a little bit more financially secure than the generation before it. And we want the next generation to have a brighter future than the generation before it. But the reality is this. Today, as things stand in this country, and as they've been really for our entire existence as a country, is that the sons and daughters of black Americans do not have that same opportunity. They don't have the same opportunity for good jobs with fair pay and benefits and safety and health, health protections. They just don't. But they should. Obviously, they should. The sons and daughters of future generations of black Americans should have the same opportunity to achieve the American dream as my daughters have. And that is what we must all commit to fighting for from this day forward. I know right now there is so much pain. There is so much anger. There is so much frustration. There is so much tension. But our goal should be to match those feelings with an equal amount of hope. And that only happens if we stand united in our commitment to make real and lasting change. Since the COVID-19 pandemic hit, it's, it's been communities of color that have suffered the most. When businesses closed down and people lost their jobs, people of color were impacted severely. And now we are all bearing witness to another disgraceful chapter of racial injustice, an injustice that has plagued our nation for generations. The foundation and the spirit of the labor movement is to fight for equality and justice, whether it's in response to COVID-19 or getting this country back on sound economic footing or standing up to the injustice we saw a few weeks ago in Minnesota. And we've seen over and over again, the labor movement has always led the fight for what is right and just and true. That is who we are. That is what we are as a movement. And what has always been right and just and true is that we stand together and join together and fight together and raise our voices together side by side, no matter the race or the religion 
or the culture or ethnicity or sexual orientation of the brothers and sisters fighting beside us. That diversity is our greatest strength. It's the premise that all are welcome within our movement. And that is a lesson that must be learned as our country moves forward. Now, we need to have some very difficult conversations. I know that the vast majority of police officers who perform some of the most difficult, essential, and noble work, like most people in general, are good. And they only want to do what is right. But a system where whole segments of our fellow New Yorkers, our fellow Americans, don't believe that they will be treated fairly is by that fact alone not fun functioning as it should. It's not sustainable if the people don't have faith in their system of law enforcement. There has to be trust between the community and the police that serve. I don't have the answers, but I know we must all come together to find them. And that's where I think the labor movement can be a vehicle for that change. We are the voice of all working people, from healthcare workers to law enforcement workers to construction workers and everyone in between. We can build bridges where others seek to divide. Now, more than 40 years ago, I experienced uh, a life lesson that came flooding back to me amid this time of, of social unrest. And I struggle to tell this story because it's been more than 40 years in the making. And sometimes you see and you learn things about yourself that you may not have recognized earlier in your life, but you wish you had. And sometimes you wish you had a more... Uh, of a self-introspection, particularly when you're younger. I grew up in the Bronx in the 1970s and 80s, and although I didn't know it then, and it, and it wouldn't have made, mattered much if I did, we were a financially lower middle-class family. There wasn't a whole lot of money to go around. But um, what I did grow up with was a sense that everyone was to be taken at face value. Uh, my parents taught me and my sister that everyone has value, and that we are all equal. And when you're a child, in my opinion, unless it's taught to you, you don't see race or feel prejudice towards someone else. And I, I, I was very fortunate that my parents taught my sister and I the way they did, to love everyone, to accept everyone. And my story starts with Little League. I played for Pelham Parkway Little League in the Bronx. I was I was nine years old and I played with kids when I first started that didn't look like me or sound like me. We had Italian kids like myself. We had Irish and German kids and Jewish kids and Asian kids. We had white kids and black kids and Latino kids. Uh, we had kids that spoke English as a second language, but it didn't matter because we all just wanted to play ball. It was a great way to grow up and it taught me, uh, a lot of lessons about teamwork and the different cultures that everyone came from. Anyway, uh, I was good enough at 12 or 13 years old. I can't remember what age exactly to make our league's tournament team or what today would be called a, a travel team. And in one day, again, either at 12 or 13 years old, either it was either little league or Babe Ruth league. We all met at our home field, little league field. And half the team piled into my father's car. He had a station wagon and the other half into another coach's car. And we drove to the opposing team's field. And I bring this particular game up because that day at 12 or 13 years old, even though <clears throat> I grew up in a racially diverse borough, 
that was the day I saw racism up close, or maybe a better description. That was the first time I saw hatred up close, because for sure, I mean, I had heard all the bad words before, uh, either in the street or in school. I heard them in the schoolyards, and you hear all those bad things. But this was different, because the things we all heard about our black teammates came at us with hatred behind them uh, from the moment we got out of the car. And as I said before, at at that age, it has to be taught to you. What were these kids being taught at home by their parents? And now I understand how hatred is passed down from generation to generation because these kids were too young to have these thoughts on their own. They had to be taught that hatred, that prejudice. Anyway, one player in particular on our team, he received the brunt of the taunting. The other team was was relentless. Anyway, the taunting went on until after the game, and we lost the game by a lot. I don't remember the score. It was 40 years ago, but we lost handily. And as we went to shake hands after the game with the other team, someone on that team said something to our teammate, uh, and a fight broke out. <clears throat> and the guys on the other team were much bigger than us. But, you know, we all joined together and we fought back and we protected our friend. And I'm proud of that. And we were all proud of it that day. And when we all got in the car to go home, there were jokes and there was kidding around like kids would do. Because when you're young, you don't really know how to handle something like that intellectually. I bring this all up now because I haven't thought about that game for a long time because, as I said, it was almost 40 years ago. But as I look back on it now, I I feel anger and I feel hurt and I feel amazement because at that age, I never thought to think if that was the first time my friend had heard those things said about him. My guess is probably not. And as I look back on it now, uh, I'm disappointed in myself for not ever thinking until this very week if my friend went home that night and told his parents about what happened at the game that day. And if he didn't, then you know it's something he had heard before. And again, if he didn't, how much hurt or embarrassment he must have felt that this kept happening to him and how he had to carry that around with him at that young age, at 12 or 13 years old. And now I think, what if he did tell his parents about the game that night? Because as a parent myself now, I cannot even imagine the pain and the anger and the sadness his parents must have felt in their heart and their soul to hear what their son went through that day. As a parent, your instinct is to fiercely protect your children. But his parents would never be able to protect their son from prejudice and racism. And now 40 years later, I am ashamed that I have never even thought about what my friend must have gone through over the years, as now he's a man in his early 50s like I am. And that's the difference between me and my teammate. I haven't seen him in almost 40 years, but I've had the chance now to reflect and think about these things from the distance of time and age. And kids like my friend, the the black kids that I grew up with, playing with, who are my friends, who are now grown men, 
have had to live with a target of hatred on their backs every single day of their lives, a hatred that I have never had to deal with. We must be better than that. Again, as human beings, that is what this moment, this fight is all about. I now want to hand it over to my friend and brother, the secretary treasurer of the New York State AFL-CIO and the president of the Coalition of Black Trade Unionists, Terry Melvin. Thank you, Mario. Uh, this, uh, what we're going through right now, is about systematic racism in this country. The history of this country was built on systematic racism, and it continues today. Slavery, Jim Crow laws, underfunding of inner-city public schools, lack of affordable health care in the inner cities and people that look like me, poor infrastructure in the inner cities, broadband lacking in the inner cities. We have children that have been taken out of school and many of them cannot participate in their classes because they don't have adequate broadband. Food deserts in our communities where we don't have grocery stores that have fresh fruits and vegetables to feed our children and they they're, they're end up eating foods that they should not be eating. Banking deserts in the community redlining for loans in our community. And then there is the criminal justice system, the ultimate systematic racism in this country. Crack users were convicted and sent to prison, but opioid users are sick and need to be put in the hospital. Systematic racism. Sentencing for marijuana use and distribution higher than that than was for cocaine. Systematic racism, racial profiling through things like stop and frisk used across the country, that is systematic racism. This is not all law enforcement. This is not all police officers. The problem is not the person behind the badge, but the institution that supports the badge. Our leaders, both elected and appointed, have chosen to allow murderous police officers to walk the streets uninhibited. They've allowed the institution to punish whistleblowers and not the real criminals. This is the real problem. This is where the reforms need to be. What happened to George Floyd was horrific and graphic, but it was also expected, and that is the problem. We have been inundated with video footage of black people begging for their life while being murdered by law enforcement. And we're becoming numb to that fact that these killers would never face justice. George Floyd was the straw that broke the Campbell's back. The difference today and five or so years ago when we dealt with the death of Eric Gardner and Freddie Gray is that we're in a different environment. We're in a COVID-19 environment. People have not, uh, they're not working, they're at home, they're paying attention to the news. It's in their face. Another more familiar and lethal virus has unleashed an epic wave of stress and anger and rebellion across the nation. From Minneapolis to LA to Brooklyn, 
from Idaho to Iowa to Miami, and nearly every Black household in America, racism, systematic racism has surfaced to choke yet another Black life to death. Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd. We all watched over and over the sickening cell phone video of a white Minneapolis cop press his knee into the neck of George Floyd. Pressing even as Floyd uttered the same words we heard Eric Gardner grasp in 2015. I can't breathe, I can't breathe. For eight long minutes and 46 seconds, another black man was tortured and murdered in broad daylight in the custody of four police officers. This, while COVID-19 is snatching away our jobs and loved ones, this, while we risk our lives in hospital, delivering the mail and packages, tending to the elderly in nursing homes and hauling away the garbage. This, while some folks are flocking to beaches to resume their American dream. Indeed, indeed, the fallout from COVID-19 and the systematic racism in policing have formed a perfect storm of trauma to hit our families and communities, which are already reeling from three and a half years of Trumpism. I grew up in this movement bargaining contracts, as I do now as the secretary treasurer of the state fed. But let me tell you right now, there is no contract that allows murder on the job. There is no contract that allows a worker to supersede any local, state, or federal law. And let me tell you, murder is a local, state, and federal law. So it is not the contracts that's letting these officers get off. It is the employer who is not disciplining them, who is not terminating them, who is not punishing them for breaking the law. As a black father, I've raised my kids to understand and navigate a racist world. I had to warn my daughters that black girls are the highest missing demographic of kids that disappear. I had to warn my son how to handle himself around police officers and cops. Now as a grandfather, I. I'm having the exact same conversations with my grandchildren. Once again, having to explain to another generation how to navigate around white supremacist institutions. And I know this speech well because it was the same speech my mama gave me when I was growing up. And it was the same speech she was giving growing up centuries of black babies have been raised in this country being warned of how to navigate around its inherent racist ways. Now I know we have to talk about the looters. There's no way we can talk protests without looters. Let me say the same way I am clear that all police are not bad, let me say, let me say, even more emphatically, that the protesters demanding justice 
are far more than the few looters. As a matter of fact, there is evidence that white supremacists are encouraging and causing the looting to discredit this movement. So I'm not too concerned with this fraction of degenerates. The movement has no place for them. And I've seen the videos of peaceful protesters stopping, detaining, and retaining looters. In this country, we have a right to protest. In this country, we have a right to march, to let our voices be heard. Our Constitution gives us that right. And we should not allow a few people who are trying to disrupt and detain and move away from the real issue, which is racial injustice that we need to start curing in this country. We should not in, let anyone detract us from that. What is being lost is all the dramatic change that has occurred. Civil War monuments erected to humiliate the descendants of slaves have been taken down at an extraordinary rate. New policies on police oversight and accountability have been en enacted locally all over the country. The street leading to the White House is now called Black Lives Matter Plaza. This is real. This is change, real change, and it's having a lasting effect. What has to happen is long-term reform, institutional reform to reflect the needs of the community, reform that humanizes the citizens and devalues the property. Police are directed to address broken windows, policing, and protecting private wealth. They need to be focused on serving the public and working with their community. There have been great ideas floated and implemented. We've been talking with the National Organization of Black Law Enforcement, and they have some very positive and progressive reforms. The Black Lives Matter movement has also issued policy demands and changes that are feasible and beneficial. President Obama had implemented reforms and oversight that this president scrapped with his first attorney general. But I, I'm so very proud of this place that I've been for the last 40 plus years called the labor movement. We're standing shoulder and shoulder with Black Lives Matter and the progressive movement. This issue has been discussed in an emergency meeting of the General Executive Board of the AFL-CIO and the Policy and Legislative Committee. The AFL-CIO is affirmatively calling on the following. The resignation of the Defense Secretary and Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff as done by the AFL Union's Veterans Council. This is in response to them pouring tear gas on citizens that were peacefully protesting so that the quote unquote commander in chief could get a photo op in front of a church holding a Bible upside down like he'd never seen one before. They also are calling on to implement the recommendations of the Race Commission uh, 
that we did a few years ago. They're looking to implement the recommendations of the Future Commission on Demographics uh, that we did last year, which talks about how we inculcate the needs of all of our workers into the everyday lives of our unions. We recommend that every central labor council work with local unions to engage the community in listening sessions modeled after our 2013 AFL-CIO convention and put together a manual to help them deal with the race commission work that they need to do. We also are calling on the resignation of the Minneapolis Police Union president, who said he was going to defend those wrong, those that were accused for killing a man in broad daylight. Ultimately, it is our elected officials who have to be held accountable. They are the employer of the police. They can issue legislation to criminalize police brutality. They can develop community policing policies. Our elected officials can do more than they want to do and are comfortable blaming the union and the contracts. Come November, we need to vote in people who look like us, speak like us, and will fight for us. I'm proud of the work that we've done in the labor movement. I'm proud of the vision that we have for the future of our movement and the future of this country. But I want to say to all that are listening out there today that we are the ones that can make a change. We are the ones when we stand together shoulder to shoulder, hand in hand, can change the direction of this country. We can root out systematic racism and make this country live up to the language in our founding documents, which says that we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they're endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. And among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We all have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And I call on all of us, men, women, boys, and girls, black, white, yellow, and red, gay, straight, or whoever you call yourself, Muslim, Christian, and Jew, we're all one race, the human race. Let's stand shoulder to shoulder. Let's root out racism. Let's stand up and be the country that God created us to be. Thank you so much. And back to you, Mario. Thank you, Terry. Brothers and sisters, we must seize this moment and commit to standing and fighting and raising our voices together in solidarity against the hatred that divides us and instead stand together in peace. The labor movement in this state must and will be part of that fight. I invite everyone listening to join us in this fight. Please, everyone, stay healthy, stay strong, and stay united. Thank you.
Thanks for listening to the Union Strong podcast. If you like what you're hearing, you can subscribe and give us a rating. This has been a production of the New York State AFL-CIO. Our president is Mario Salento. Our secretary-treasurer is Terry Melvin. We're a federation of 3,000 unions representing 2.5 million union members, retirees, and their families with one goal, to raise the standard of living and quality of life of all working people. We keep New York State Union strong by fighting for better wages, better benefits, and better working conditions. For more information on the labor movement in New York, visit nysaflcio.org. Until next time, stay union and stay strong.